Welcome this Christmas morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at the first seven verses of Isaiah's prophecy. The first four or five will undoubtedly be kind of unfamiliar to you. And then as we get to verse 6, it'll begin to ring with familiarity on down to the end of verse 7. The year is 735 B.C. It has been roughly 200 years since the death of Solomon and the division of the nation of Israel into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel to the north with its capital city of Samaria, the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, immediately after this separation, became apostate, forsaking Israel's true God, Israel's true worship, and Israel's true king, the Davidic king. The southern kingdom of Judah fared little better. They had periods of revival and renewal of their covenant relationship with Yahweh, but these periods were but brief interludes in the long history of their idolatry and their apostasy. And these periods of revival only served to slow their steady decline into destruction. Now, in Isaiah's day, we find that there is a new power rising to the north and the east of Israel, a fierce people known as the Assyrians, a people skilled in warfare who have earned a reputation for unparalleled cruelty and unbridled ferocity in battle. The Assyrians are beginning to press in and threaten the northern kingdom of Israel. But no longer trusting Yahweh to protect and deliver them, Israel turns instead for help to her neighbor to the north, the kingdom of Aram or Syria. The two kingdoms, Israel and Syria, form an alliance in order to repel the Assyrians And they go to King Ahaz of the southern kingdom of Judah, and they demand that he join them in their alliance. But Ahaz refuses, and when he does, the armies of Israel and Aram threaten an attack upon Judah in order to force an alliance. But while God has already given the northern kingdom of Israel over in judgment to destruction for their apostasy, apostasy, they will be finally destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC, his covenant with the southern kingdom of Judah and with their Davidic line of kings still stands. God has determined that he will not give Judah over to this unholy alliance of Israel and Aram, and he will protect them from the invading army of the Assyrians. And so God sends his prophet, Isaiah, to King Ahaz of Judah in order to assure him of God's protection from these threats that are pressing in upon her borders. But King Ahaz does not believe the prophet's message. In fact, Isaiah 7-2 records this. When the house of David, that is the king of Judah, was told... Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom of Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. God even offered to give Ahaz a sign of his promise of presence and protection and mercy and grace. 
A sign that would be a child born to a young maiden whose name shall be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In other words, God was going to give the king a sign. There would be in his household a child born, and this child would be a visible token of his promise of protection and provision. Ahaz would be able to look at this child and know God is with us. But still Ahaz and still the people of Judah do not believe. They still refuse to trust in Yahweh, their God. Ray Ortland writes, quote, There is no need to panic. God is with his people. But Ahaz doesn't believe that. He doesn't want to believe it. He prefers dismay and hand-wringing. He feels more normal, more at home, frantically devising his own salvation and lusting for the success of his own plans rather than delighting in the victory of God. His heart is hard. I wonder if the same couldn't be said about some of us in our day of trial. That we prefer dismay and hand-wringing over faith in the living God who has given us not only the promise, but the sign of his promise, who is Emmanuel, that is, God with us. The heart of the people is hard. The heart of the king is hard. They do not trust in the promise of God, and the impending crisis is going to reveal their lack of faith. The rest of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8 paints a dismal picture of the state of God's people. By and large, the people of Judah refuse God's sign and they reject God's promise. And so God declares that he will whistle for the king of Assyria and for his armies to come and to shave his people as with a razor, verses 18 to 20 of chapter 7. First, the king of Assyria will destroy the kingdom of Aram and the northern kingdom of Israel, chapter 8 and verse 4. There is no hope in unholy alliances, so says God. Then God will bring Assyria's knife to the very throat of the southern kingdom of Judah. Or to change the metaphor, God says that he will bring the armies of Assyria upon Judah like the waters of a flood. They will come up to their very neck. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, that's the king of Aram. Behold, therefore, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, the Euphrates, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So Judah, in their faithlessness, is going to watch the armies of Assyria come in like a flood and and rise up to their very neck. They're going to be encamped just outside the walls of Jerusalem. When at the very last moment, when all hope seems lost... God will deliver his people from Assyria's hand. It's an amazing story, and you can read about it in Isaiah 36 and 37. The downfall of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. But we've got to ask ourselves this question as we're we're approaching 
Isaiah chapter 9. Why does God bring this judgment upon his covenant people? And the answer is plain from the two chapters that precede. It is because they do not trust their God and they do not believe his promise. They are a people who would rather trust in their own plans, would rather rely upon their own alliances, and would rather hope in their own devices. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 8. They are a people who fear the nations of the world, but do not fear the Lord their God, verses 12 and 13. They are a people who would rather consult mediums and spiritists than consult the word of their God, verses 19 and 20. They are a people, says Isaiah, in whom there is no dawn, and there is no light, there is no truth. They are a people who walk in darkness. They are a people who are consumed by unbelief, by idolatry, by wickedness, and by rebellion against God. In short, they are a people who are no different than the peoples of the world, and they look sadly like many in the church today. And what is to become of them? I want you to look at the last two verses of Isaiah chapter 8, which form the backdrop, the context to the prophecy that we're going to study this morning. Isaiah says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is a description of an unbelieving people. A people without light, a people without faith, and a people without hope. And yet, I would remind you, it's not a a depiction or a description of pagan Gentiles. Verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8 is God's description of Israel. These are church people. These are people like you and me. Adverse circumstances, trials, tribulations have overwhelmed them and it has revealed, as they so often do, the superficiality of their faith. And so they've given up on their king And worse, they've given up on their God. So before we open up Isaiah chapter 9, I want us to take a long look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8. This is a picture of hopelessness. This is what happens when the people of God abandon their faith and their hope and their trust in their God in the midst of their circumstances. And I wonder if this is not a description of some of you here this morning. Look at how Isaiah describes them. They are greatly distressed and hungry. They're starving, they are wasting away for lack of spiritual food and spiritual drink, and yet they find themselves helpless to provide what they need. Their soul feels this gnawing discontent that nothing seems to be able to sate. Try as they might with all of the different things that they imagine will make them happy and bring them fulfillment, but it never works and they don't know why. Can you relate? Isaiah says they are enraged and contemptuous. 
Though they are famished and starving like a rabid animal, they snap and gnash their teeth at the hand of God which freely offers them the bread of life and the waters of salvation that alone can satisfy their starving and thirsty souls. They're mad at God. And they blame Him for their dissatisfaction, but neither will they trust Him to provide what their souls were designed and created to feast upon. Are you mad at God this morning? They are dissatisfied and despairing. They look to the earth for satisfaction and security, but they find only distress and darkness. Are you looking to the earth to try to fill that void that cannot be satisfied. Looking to the earth in immoral relationships. Looking to the earth in in buying stuff that you think will make you happy. Looking to the earth in in the, the praise of man and the pats on the back that make you feel so good for a moment, but it's just never enough because you weren't made to live off of the praise of men. They look to the earth, but they find only distress and darkness. Therefore, a growing hopelessness and a sense of utter futility has set in upon their soul. And Isaiah says they are destined for thick darkness. Because unless they can find some hope, unless they can find some light, unless they can grasp hold of some redemption, some salvation, they will be thrust into everlastingly thick darkness from which they will never emerge. That's where Isaiah 8 ends, and that's where Isaiah 9 begins. Isaiah 8, 21 to 22, is a warning to church people. It's a warning to this church. Beware of faithlessness. Beware of hopelessness. Even in, and especially in, your present trial. Beware of losing hope. Beware of despair. Despair is not a condition which can or should be ignored. If you are a superficial saint with a fair-weather faith, that fact will be revealed when circumstances turn against you and you find yourself wondering, where is God, I thought he promised me better than this. Why is he letting this happen to me? And I want to remind you that this is the very purpose of those trials and tribulations. It reveals either the reality or the futility of your faith. Some of you have had a very difficult 2018. I'm aware of a number of those circumstances in your lives, and I'm just betting that I'm unaware of about twice as many. I know you've had a tough year, and I'm not making light of the circumstances that that you came in with this morning. They're hard. They're dark. But in the midst of that darkness, I'm coming to you two days before Christmas, and I'm telling you, don't lose hope. There is no 
hope away from the light which God promises in Isaiah chapter 9. And in fact, Isaiah chapter 9 was given to such a people as you, to a hopeless people, to a dark people, to a sinful people, to a faithless people. Today's text is for you. These verses are light and hope for those who walk in darkness and despair. They lift us up out of our difficult circumstances and they show us an infallibly glorious future for those who will hope in God. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to watch the sun rise over the darkness of your present circumstances, and I'm going to invite you to hope together in the child who was born for our redemption, who was born to be our king, and who was born to reign forever in righteousness and peace and joy forevermore. There is no darkness, there is no distress, there is no despair that the one of whom Isaiah speaks in this chapter cannot redeem. So look for him in this text. See him, trust him, hope in him, and make this glorious future the ground of your present hope this morning. My prayer is and has been that you would walk away from this morning saying, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know it will because there's been a child born. So this morning, I want to give you seven grounds for hope in the midst of your present darkness. Seven reasons to hope this morning, even in your darkness. Number one, the first reason to hope is that God has promised that the child born to us will bring an end to your anguish. It's a promise from the living God. Look at verse one. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now the geographic locations mentioned in this verse, Zebulun, Naphtali, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. These all refer to the northernmost reaches of Israel. These were the lands historically which were the first to be conquered when foreign armies invaded Israel. They were the most vulnerable and the most defenseless regions in Palestine. They were the first, therefore, to feel the sting of the Lord's discipline and judgment. You'll notice Isaiah says, He, that is, the Lord, brought them into contempt. They were considered by the rest of Israel to be backwoods, rural poor, contemptuous. They were constantly subjugated. They were never free. They were just a people who could never get it together. Maybe kind of like the way you view yourself. Do you remember the words of Nathaniel in John 1 when he heard that there was a Messiah who's appeared to Israel and oh yeah, he's from Nazareth in Galilee? Nathaniel said, Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
See, God's going to take this rejected region, which was constantly under his judgment, and he's going to send to them a savior. And he's going to do the same for you. This is what Jesus does. He takes the poor, he takes the downtrodden, he takes the rejected, the lowly, the outcast, he takes the sinner who is held in contempt by religious people, and he removes their shame. He drives away their gloom and their anguish, and he clothes them in robes of joy and righteousness and hope. I want you to think of the parable of the prodigal son. What did the father do for the son when he returned in humility and shame and contempt? I want you to think of the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7 who comes into the Pharisee's house where Jesus is dining and begins to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. I want you to think of the adulterous woman in John chapter 8, the one who was about to be stoned by the religious leaders and yet Jesus steps between them and her. I want you to think of the way Jesus receives these sinful, shameful, contemptuous people. What did he do? He lifted their heads and he defended them from those who would condemn. And if you identify with those figures this morning, if you feel despised, rejected, outcast, like you don't belong here, If you feel like the words gloom and anguish could describe your present circumstances, this child has come for you. He will take away your anguish and he will make you glorious. And that's a reason for you to hope this morning. Number two, this child will bring light to your darkness. Verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. Darkness in prophetic literature, especially in Isaiah, is a metaphor for the experience of the Lord hiding his face. Okay, removing his, his hand of blessing. It's the experience that the psalmists often spoke of, of crying out to the Lord in your day of trouble, but hearing from heaven only silence. It's crying out for deliverance, but deliverance doesn't come. It is the Lord removing from you his hand of blessing and protection and allowing destruction and devastation to overtake you. That's exactly what Isaiah is describing, and that's exactly what was happening to Judah in his day. Let your eyes run up a few verses to Isaiah 8.17. Where Isaiah, in distinction from the rest of Judah, he says, But I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Isaiah acknowledged that God's hand of discipline was heavy upon his people. Darkness and destruction had settled upon Isaiah's land. But what was Isaiah's response? I'm going to wait for the Lord. I'm going to hope in Him. Even when the armies of, of Israel and Syria press in, even when the armies of Assyria camp and surround the very gates of Jerusalem, I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in Him. 
How could Isaiah have this hope when all around him was turmoil and chaos? Isaiah had a promise. Isaiah had the very same promise you have this morning. He had a promise from God that a great light, brighter than the noonday sun, was going to rise upon the land of Israel, a land that was under judgment and darkness. And I commend that same hope to you because you have the same promise. What Isaiah prophesied eight centuries before had occurred, has occurred. The child of whom he spoke has been born. The son whom he promised has been given. The light has dawned, not yet in all of its brightness, in all of its fullness, but he has come and that full son of righteousness is about to rise. Paul says in Romans 13, 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So this morning, in your present darkness, I want you to do as Isaiah did. Wait for the Lord and hope in Him. Not with some leap in the dark, but on the basis of an infallible promise. In fact, you're in a better position than Isaiah was, aren't you? Isaiah was sitting here 800 years before the fulfillment of this prophecy. And yet he hoped in it. He said, there's coming a child. A son's going to be given And he's going to reign forever on the throne of his father in righteousness and peace and everlasting joy. And I'm going to reign with him. Yet here we stand on the other side of that coming child. We can look back to that stable in Bethlehem and we can see the son that was given. You have more reason to wait on the Lord and more reason to hope in him than Isaiah did. So know that God will fulfill His promise. The sun will rise on you. The light will dawn and your deliverance will come. So, says Paul, cast off the deeds of darkness. Don't live in darkness. And put on the armor of light. Reason number three for you to hope this morning. The coming child will increase your joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You'll notice that throughout this passage, Isaiah speaks in the past tense. This doesn't mean that what he promised has already transpired. Rather, it's a technique of Hebrew prophecy where the the prophet will underscore the certainty of the promise by speaking of it as if it had already happened. In other words, the promise of which Isaiah speaks is so certain and so sure that he feels free to speak of it in the past tense like it already occurred. So if you will keep your hope in God and in the child whom he has sent into the world, there will come a day, I promise you, when you will find yourself along with the rest of the holy nation 
the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the face of the earth, you will find yourself rejoicing before the Lord as with the joy of harvest, as with the joy of victory. I know it doesn't look like it now. I know that right now all you can see is darkness and despair and anguish and gloom, but I'm just pleading with you by the grace of the Spirit, hope in the Lord and wait upon Him. There will come a day when you will dance before His throne with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So this Christmas, I implore you, I invite you, To believe that though his anger is for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And your morning is about to come. Believe that. This child was born in order to increase your joy and cause it to overflow. So hope in that and every sorrow that you experience in this life will only serve your greater joy for all eternity. Number four, this child has come to set you free. There's a reason to hope. I want you to note the four. You see the word four at the beginning of verse four and five and six? In other words, these verses provide the grounds for the promises of verses one to three. Okay? In other words, how can we be so sure that God will bring an end to our anguish? How can we be so sure that God will shine his light upon our darkness and that he will increase our joy after our sorrow? Because the child who is to be born, the son who is to be given, verse 5, has come to set us free from our bondage, verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. I you to notice, this would have been very familiar to Israelites. Isaiah uses language from the Exodus here in verse 4 to describe the deliverance that's going to come at the hands of this child. Yoke, burden, shoulder, oppressor, those are very common words in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and in the Psalms when they're talking about God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Isaiah then combines Israel's exodus from Egypt with Gideon's victory at Midian when Gideon led a force of 300 and by the Lord's strength they defeated a force of 32,000. So what's Isaiah trying to tell us? He's telling us that the reason we can be so sure that we will have glory after our anguish, light after our darkness, and joy after our sorrow is because God has broken the yoke of our burden, the staff across our shoulders, and the rod of our oppressors. What kind of bondage does Isaiah have in mind? Isaiah does not have primarily in mind the oppression of foreign armies. He's not thinking about Assyrians or Syrians or Egyptians or Romans. He's not thinking about any political force. His view was far more eternal and far more expansive than that. And I think he, or maybe it was the Holy Spirit speaking through him, and Isaiah spoke better than he knew. But in either case, he has in mind slavery to sin and the yoke of the law. How do I know that? Because that's the way the New Testament uses these kind of prophecies and this kind of language. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15... 
Peter said with regard to the law. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter refers to the law as a yoke. And he says, don't put that on the church. Paul likewise spoke of the law as a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The law is a yoke of bondage to sinners, and the prophets knew that. The law commanded them to do what it was not in their power to do, and then punished them for failing to do it. Love God, the law says, to those whose hearts are naturally bent in hostility toward him. Love your neighbor, the law commands, to those who by nature are self-centered. Enjoy God or else, says the law to those who are blind to God's beauty and God's glory. The law in and of itself is holy and righteous and good, says Paul in Romans seven twelve, And it brings life to those who keep it. But none of us can. And so to us, the law is not holy and righteous and good. It is a terror. For those who are unholy and unrighteous and not good, it is slavery. It is a yoke of bondage to us, to sinners. The law can only bring condemnation and death. A rigid master was the law, demanding bricks, denying straw. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, then gives me wings. See, Christ has broken the law's power. He has shattered the rod of the oppressor. When Jesus, the child, the son given, when he died upon the cross, he satisfied the law's claims on behalf of those who hope in him. No more can the law condemn those who trust in Christ. And this victory over the law, says Isaiah, is reminiscent of Gideon's victory at Midian. It's not by man's strength or power or ingenuity or goodness. It's all according to God's grace and it's all for his glory. That's why God told Gideon, get rid of these thousands upon thousands of soldiers and you go into battle with 300 against 32,000 and I'll show you what I can do. And at the cross, Jesus said, cease your striving. Stop your ceaseless efforts to try to put God in your debt with your own morality and your own righteousness and your own law-keeping. Watch what I can do. And he breaks the yoke of the burden which is upon our shoulders, and he says, I'll receive anyone, any sinner, any lawbreaker who will come to me through faith and faith only. Number five, you will have rest and light and joy because this child has come to bring you peace. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah is painting an image of the aftermath of a battle. 
when the enemy garments are gathered and they're burned in the fires of victory. And he's saying there's coming a day when your battle's going to be over, when your victory will be won. One commentator, J. Alec Motyer, said, The people enter into the fruits of a victory they did not win, for it was the Lord who acted. And the result of this decisive victory, this total defeat, is lasting peace. So verse 5 assures you that there will come a day when all of your enemies, sin, fear, loneliness, doubt, grief, sickness, death, weakness, and all those who persecute you and oppose God and his kingdom, they will all lie dead on the field of battle, having been slain by the sword of the Son of God. And then will come an unending peace for the people of God. And Isaiah bids you in the midst of your present darkness to hope in that day. Number six, this child will reign as king, and there's a reason to hope. So who is this triumphant warrior? Isaiah's been holding out on us through five verses. He's been promising these inexplicably glorious realities, and he hasn't told us a thing about how it's going to come to pass until verse 6. Who is this triumphant warrior? Who is this victorious liberator who sets his people free and slays all of their and his enemies? What kind of man could accomplish the things that are promised in these verses? Well, as the next verse stunningly declares, it is a child. And it's not just any child. It's a holy child. It's a God-man. And this child will come to reign as king. So look with me at verse 6, and now we begin the familiar portion of this prophecy. For unto us a child is born. Just pause there. Why can we hope? On what basis can you believe that anything that's been promised in this, in this chapter so far that looks so antithetical and opposite to your present circumstances, on what basis can you hope that any of that's going to come to pass? Here comes Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it forever from this, I'm sorry, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this morning, Isaiah is calling us to hope, even in the midst of our darkness, even in the midst of our doubt, even in the midst of our despair. And he's calling us to hope in what we cannot see and to trust in what we do not feel. But who could possibly be worthy of such hope? Who could possibly be worthy of such confidence? That's where verses 6 and 7 come in because they show us that this hope, this trust, this confidence is well-placed. 
Because the king who is promised in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 is one in whom we can and must place our trust. Let me show you five things about this king. Number one, he is a human king. He is a child to be born. In other words, he's not going to suddenly appear upon the earth clothed in splendor like some majestic, splendid figure. He's going to be born amidst blood and water and amniotic fluid with the pains of the mother and the cries of a newborn child. Jesus entered our world, in other words, the same way that we do, bearing the same flesh, suffering the same trials, enduring the same tribulations. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In other words, you can trust him because he's one of us. He does not make promises concerning matters he knows nothing of. He is familiar with our weakness. You can trust him. Second, he's a divine king. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So combined with the familiarity of his humanity is the omnipotent power of his deity. In other words, you can trust him because he's not like us. You can trust him because being God, he is well able to deliver upon his promises. No circumstance operates outside of his providential governance. He knows what is happening to you. Indeed, he planned it for your everlasting good and eternal joy. Your present tribulation is a part of his purpose to bring you into everlasting peace and righteousness and joy. Third, he is a wise king. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. According to Motyer, wonderful is the nearest Hebrew word to the English word supernatural. In other words, this coming king will rule with supernatural wisdom. That is, omniscience. How awesome would your life be if you could see the end from the beginning? How well would things go with you if you could make every decision knowing exactly how it's going to turn out? That's how Jesus makes his decisions. And that's precisely why you can trust him. His wisdom so far exceeds ours. It is rooted in his divine omniscience, and as a result, there shall be perfect peace in his kingdom because he always makes the right call. His name shall be called the Prince of Peace. You can trust him because he never errs. When he takes the government upon his shoulders, there shall be no end to the increase and peace of his reign. A perfect king cannot but reign perfectly. Fourth, you can trust him because he's the rightful king. He sits upon the throne of David, not as a usurper, not as a pretender, but as the rightful heir of God's established throne. 
You can trust him because he's the true and legitimate king, and therefore he rightly commands your allegiance. Finally, you can trust him because he's an eternal king. He will reign forever with justice and righteousness, never to die, never to be succeeded, never to abdicate his throne. The divine human Messiah of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, who was born a child in a stable in Bethlehem, is infinitely worthy of your trust, your hope, your confidence. You can wait on him. Finally, there's one more reason why you should set your hope upon all that this passage promises. Even in the midst of your darkness, even in the midst of your trials, even in the midst of your despair, there's one more reason, and it's found in the very last line of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. That's not an insignificant conclusion to this passage. Because it reveals that the determinative factor in the accomplishment of all this is not you. (laughs) And isn't that good news? Because I'm a majestic screw-up. And if the everlasting reign of God and His people is dependent upon my zeal or my faithfulness, or my righteousness, or my wisdom, there is no hope. And that's why you came in here hopeless, because you've been acting like the zeal of you has to accomplish this. It doesn't. The zeal or the passion of the Lord of hosts will do it. He will do it. He will do it. Furthermore, we stand, as I said earlier, in a far better position than the people of Isaiah's day because the child has already come. The son has already been given. He was born. He did live. He did die. He was risen. And he has ascended to the right hand of God and he is coming again in glory to rule and to reign in righteousness and peace forevermore. His second coming is as certain as his first. So this morning, try as you might to hope, to believe that there will be an end to your anguish and light after darkness and joy after sorrow that it will somehow get better, that somehow you're going to scratch your way through. You need to remember that all that God has promised you in Christ does not depend upon your zeal. It does not depend upon your faithfulness. It does not depend upon your righteousness. It doesn't depend upon your ability to navigate your way through the difficult circumstances of your life. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So ask yourself, will the Lord fail to complete what he has already started? The child's already been born. The son has already been given. The yoke of your oppressor, that is the law, has already been broken. 
Sin has already been defeated. An atonement has already been made. The Son has already been raised again. He is already seated at the right hand of God. 95% of what's promised in this chapter has already happened. Will God let the other five fail? Will he fail to send his son back to finish what was begun in the stable in Bethlehem or on the cross at Calvary? No, he will not. For his zeal, his passion, for his people and his glory will see this thing done to the end. So this morning, I offer you a promise. I give to you Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, explained and applied. And I give it to you. Merry Christmas. And I not only give you a promise, I give you a sign of that promise. A child, Emmanuel, God with us. He is with us. He is with you. In your anguish, in your gloom, in your darkness, in your despair, in your failing health, in your failing marriage, in your failing finances, in your stumbling in sin, He is with you. So don't be like King Ahaz. Don't reject the sign that is the child in the manger and the Savior upon the cross. Do not be unbelieving. Do not lose hope. Look at the child and believe. I want you to bow your heads this morning. I know that you came in with all manner of circumstances. There's a few of you here who came in and things are pretty peachy. And so it didn't really connect when I'm talking about darkness and I'm talking about gloom and I'm talking about anguish. To you this morning, I say just buckle your seatbelt because it's coming. And you need to remember what I've said this morning. So lock this inside your heart. Be like Mary who treasured all of these things in her heart before it came to pass. To the rest of us, who are presently enduring all manner, all degrees of darkness and gloom and anguish and despair. I want you to ask yourself three questions. I want you to bring that despair into the foreground of your mind, and we're going to speak to it this morning. You got it there? Bring it up. We're going we're gonna to talk to it. We're going to ask it, has the child not already come? And the answer is yes. 2,000 years ago, he was born in a stable in Bethlehem. The angels announced his birth. The shepherds bowed and rejoiced and trembled. Wise men came from a thousand miles away and brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. He has come. Number two, ask yourself, does he not now reign upon heaven's throne? Answer, yes, he does. 
This child, born in the stable in Bethlehem, grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And he went forth as had been ordained for him, living in righteousness, teaching the people the way of God, performing many miracles. And he bore the sins of his people to the cross where he was slaughtered and absorbed in himself the wrath of God which was due us for our sins. And he was buried And on the third day, he rose again and he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Does he not reign? Yes, he does. Number three, I want you to ask yourself, will he not then return in order to bring peace and righteousness and eternal joy to everyone who trusts him, indeed he will. I want you to put those three unshakable realities together, and I want you to put those into your heart. And I want you to ask yourself, what do I have to despair over? Where is the darkness now? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in Him. Wait for Him. Trust in Him. That He who was born, lived, died, risen on the third day, ascended to heaven and is coming again, that He will cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him to those who hope in Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Your present darkness can only serve your everlasting joy. Hope in Him. My Father, I pray that You would minister this Word to Your people. And I pray that it would cause the Son of Righteousness to rise with healing in his wings upon the darkness of their hearts, that they would be as Isaiah in Isaiah 8, 17, that even though the circumstances remain dark, even though life remains so dreadfully difficult, I will hope in him. It's in Jesus' name I pray.